of Isaiah from the book of Isaiah, of course, the prophet. And we're doing this series in the Servant Songs because these four sections in the book of Isaiah speak highly of Jesus Christ and exalt Him as our Lord and Savior. And they also strongly encourage us as the people of God to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And just to remind you again who Isaiah the prophet was, he prophesied in Jerusalem for a whole period of about 60 years, had a very long ministry in the 8th to 7th centuries B.C. And his main message, of course, was not a positive one. It was a warning to the people of God that they're going to be going into exile because of their rebellion against God, their idolatry that they've mixed in with true religion, and the immorality that they've been living in trying to fit in with the culture around them. But toward the end of his ministry, Isaiah spoke a lot about the coming of the Messiah, and especially in chapters 40 through 66 of the book of Isaiah. He wrote about the coming of the age of the Messiah, and these prophecies are some of the clearest, the most extensive, and the most glorious about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we're really looking at these songs of Isaiah is because I want us all to see Jesus more clearly. And we'll see Jesus more clearly as we look at these prophecies about him. And one description of the Messiah that Isaiah presents is he calls him the servant of the Lord. And this is a major theme at the end of the book of Isaiah, and it's spread out all over the place, but there are four sections that really just stand out in relief from their context, and they're called the servant songs. Now, it's unlikely that they were ever sung as songs, and so here's a challenge to Ramey to write four songs about the songs of Isaiah. Maybe next year, maybe next year. So, but we all know them, and they stand out to us when we read Isaiah. And they're listed for you in your worship folder, Isaiah 42. There's a section there, 49, 50, and then 52 to 53. Now, of course, in discussing these song, or these servant songs, it's very complex. Well, who is this servant that is being talked about in each of these passages? It can be very challenging because sometimes we read them and we think, hmm, the servant must be Isaiah. Or no, wait, maybe it's Jeremiah. Or no, maybe, maybe here he's talking about Israel as a nation being a servant to the Lord, or maybe he's talking about what he hoped they would be. Or maybe, maybe he's just talking about the remnant, the chosen that are going to be saved. Or Maybe here he's talking about the Messiah who would come someday. And it really depends on the passage that's being discussed, and sometimes there's actually more than one reference to make it even more confusing to us. But God designed it this way so that we could only grasp the truth if we understand the whole of the book of Isaiah. Have you noticed this, that God likes to make us think hard? I mean, he could have written the Bible a lot easier. But he wrote it this way because it magnifies his glory, because he's so complex in that way and the way he does things. And as we start thinking and pondering about what he's written to us in his word, it causes us to glorify him all the more and to glorify the Lord Jesus. God designed it this way so that we would understand more clearly how glorious he is. But generally speaking, when we look at these four songs, to make it really simple for us this morning, is that he's talking about Jesus, primarily. That's the referent point. He's talking about the Messiah, maybe even as an idealized servant of the Lord, and this servant would redeem 
his people and would be, and make us truly faithful servants of the Lord. So let's pray and we'll look at Isaiah 49 together this morning. Lord Jesus, we adore you again this morning just because you are so glorious. And we know that as you've spoken, that all the prophets testify to you and speak about you and who you are and your work. And we pray this morning that by the Holy Spirit that you've given to us, that you would cause us to understand even more so your glories from Isaiah 49. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 1. It's also printed for you uh, in your worship folder, so you can follow along and you can even mark it up if you want. But the first song that we looked at last week in Isaiah 42, we saw that Yahweh commissioned his servant for a far-reaching work in the world, a work that no one's ever been able to do. And this servant would eliminate theological ignorance. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This servant would free people from being prisoners of sin. This servant would establish justice once and for all over the whole earth. What a wonderful ministry. What a wonderful servant. Well, in this second song, we learn that by the same servant... God is going to reach out to the very ends of the earth and He is going to save His chosen people, the ones He has chosen to save. And we're going to listen this morning in on this song in Isaiah 40, 49 where the, where the servant and Yahweh speak to one another and they speak to us about this great work that they're going to be doing in the world. So in verses 1 to 7, we're going to listen to the servant's own testimony about his ministry that he would perform. And then in verses 8 through 13, we're going to listen to Yahweh describe the blessing that comes to us as his people. So may we learn more about our servant this morning, this eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, and may he be glorified in our eyes. So first, let's listen to the servant's testimony. In verses 1 through 7. Now, just to sort of let you see in advance how it's broken up, in the first three verses, the servant Jesus is testifying to the gospel that he's going to preach. Okay? Then in verses 4 through 6, the servant is going to, Jesus is going to testify to his life of suffering and his cross. And then finally in verse 7, God the Father will speak to his son. And so we read here in verse 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servants Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, 
the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So this servant, right away at the beginning, addresses the coastlands, those that are far off, the heathen at the very ends of the earth, that includes you and me. Remember the first song in 42 verse 4, how it says the coastlands wait for his instruction? Well, here, prophetically speaking, the instruction has just arrived. And he commands the world to listen to him because he has a particular declaration to make. The servant speaks with compelling authority as the Messiah, and he commands close attention to what he has to say. And that would be how Jesus would do his ministry on this earth and expect people to listen to what he had to say. The phrase here, from the womb, from the mother, from his mother, starts us off seeing that this servant is an individual. And phrases like this in the prophets remind us of a special calling or anointing. We think of David, or we think of Jeremiah, or we even think of the way in the New Testament the Apostle Paul talks about how his anointing is from God's design of old. Actually, it reminds us of an earlier prophecy in Isaiah about the child of the virgin that would be born in chapter 7, verse 14, speaking of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we, should, we already covered in our last song in Isaiah 42 all the Trinitarian implications in these songs. And so today, we're just going to enjoy, enjoy observing them because we do not have time to go into all of the intricacies of how God has revealed who he is. Now, the naming here is not so much that his name was already chosen, which we know was Jesus, of course. In Luke chapter 2, we read, And when the eight days were completed before his circumcision, speaking of Jesus, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And in Matthew 1.21, as we read this morning, And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. But here in this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's that he would cause his name to be great, that he would cause his name to be remembered and honored because of the office that Jesus would, would hold, his vocation, his mission, the, what he would accomplish. We clearly hear the eternal Son of God telling the world that He's coming to do His Father's will. Be ready. Be ready to listen when He speaks. And then in verse 2, the servant tells us of His work and His relationship with Yahweh. His mouth would be His weapon of choice. His office would be like that of a prophet preaching the Word of God. His speech would cut and pierce like a sword, destroying the enemies of God, both men and demons. And he would bring many to repentance. And faith in him as the divine Messiah because of this. 
I mean, this is exactly what Simeon prophesied when Jesus was presented to him for his dedication as a baby. We read in Luke 2, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. And that's exactly what took place in Jesus' ministry. That's what you read about, right? When you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you read about Jesus' ministry and what he actually says to people. It's astonishing. It cuts to the heart, to the truth, and causes repentance and faith or causes anger and hatred. He would be concealed in the hand of God, it says, hidden, even protected until the proper time he's Yahweh's sharpened arrow in his quiver ready to be used. And the image suggests that he can destroy from a long distance away, swiftly, accurately, effectively. And at that proper chosen time, he would be revealed. The incarnation, yes, is part of that revelation, that revealing, but more so what's being predicted here is the beginning of his ministry. That's when the arrow would be launched. And it would be proclaimed as if right then and there it would be said in this next verse, behold, this is my servant, my Israel, my glory, my son. And that's exactly what we're studying in the gospel according to Luke. We're taking a break from that series. But we've already seen that as Jesus launched into his ministry. And then in verse 3, the servant tells us what's been said of him and to him by Yahweh himself. He is his servant. He's called. He's equipped. He's kept for the right time to show the glory of God in his mission. He's the true Israel. Exhibiting the character of what it means to serve the Lord with 100% obedience and love. The nation of Israel... They're false. They forfeited that title. This servant is the true servant. He would be the true, the ideal Israel who would live up to that name completely. And yet the people of God should be this as well, we know. And as we've discussed, they would be made so by this one's service. Because he would redeem and he would transform the people of God as the head of the new Israel. Well, after testifying here, Jesus, to his preaching ministry, he goes on even here to testify to his life of suffering on the cross and in his life. And we read, starting in verse 4, But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. You see, the servant speaks about his assured disappointment in the future. Well, this was even hinted at, do you remember, in the first song, in 42, verse 4, how he would have to, the servant would have to persevere to the very end. He would toil hard, pouring out his life, and often it would seem during Jesus' ministry, this has no effect on people. And at the very end, he dies on a cross, and it looks like it's all over. In fact, he would live his life in misery, And he would minister to people only to be rejected by them. But ultimately, he would die on that cross as the rejected Messiah, along with criminals. 
to redeem his people for whom he came. His cross would procure our salvation from sin, and he would bear the full wrath of God and the abject rejection of God on our behalf, causing him to cry out on that cross as the forsaken one. And you can read all about that in Psalm 22. You don't even have to read about it in the New Testament. It's all right there because that's what's on his mind. It would and did look like the cross was the ending of the mission, that it was all over. Humanly speaking, it's defeat. But the servant with confidence equally speaks at the end of the verse, and he says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. God will ultimately decide what is due him, his honor and vindication. He will not be forsaken by God, but God will make his work successful and his life would count. And his cross would redeem. Have you put your trust in God's holy servant, Jesus? The apostle Peter preached in Acts 3, God raised up his servant. Who is the apostle Peter talking about? Why does he use that title? Because he's thinking about the servant from the book of Isaiah. And that's who Jesus was. And he says, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And then we read in verses 5 and 6 next, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, what Yahweh says next is in verse 6, shows that all this work, all that preaching, the cross itself is designed for great success and glory, matching all that great labor and suffering. And it would all be worth it. So here's the real consolation to Yahweh the Son from Yahweh the Father. And there's so much so that the servant begins speaking about the success of the mission and the glory and the strength before he even gets to the quotation in verse 6. All of verse 5 is an introduction to who God is. And then Yahweh says to him and to us that the return, the restoration, the salvation of the preserved ones, the elect among the Jews, although it's an enormous task, that's still too small of a glory for the Son. He deserves more glory than that. Yahweh says to him and to us that he will be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the peoples, to all of them too, all around the world, that salvation would reach to the very ends of the earth. And we already saw this in Isaiah 42. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. And people truly live in darkness without the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will be saved only by the preaching of the gospel as it goes out from his people to the very ends of the world. You see, the servant has a double task. To Israel and to the world, to make one new people out of many peoples of the world. 
He would be the Savior of the world. He would be forming a new people of God, a new Israel, a new servant. This is what the New Testament teaches. If you want to read about it, read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. It's very, 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 very clear. But to grasp that that's the glory due the Son is an amazing thing to understand about who Jesus is. And then God the Father now speaks to His Son in verse 7, and thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, this Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is a transition verse. It's summarizing everything that we just read in verses 1 to 6, and it's giving us an introduction to verses 8 to 13. Yahweh is identified as the Redeemer of Israel. It's Holy One. And if you haven't noticed that yet, the topic of this whole passage is the holiness of God. His absolute holiness. And our absolute need for it and no ability to gain it. We need redemption through His servant. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on it. The servant is identified here as the despised one. That's who Jesus was. People despised him. They despise him today. Jesus is the one abhorred by the nation, abhorred by the people that he was sent to. Oh, he's abhorred by people today. He was the servant, the subject of rulers. Oh, kings of the earth thought they controlled him. And it's true the Lord Jesus would be seen as unworthy and distasteful, despised by many. He would be rejected by his own people with great scorn, so much so that they would kill him. He would be rejected by the authorities because he's nothing to them, just a worm of a man, they thought. And so they killed him. And all this is a setup for that the suffering and vindication themes that are going to continue to come out in the third and fourth songs, and we're not there yet. Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 52 and 53, and it's, you're going to see an overwhelming fit between all four of these songs about the servant, about our Lord Jesus. But you see, things would change and truth would eventually come out because we read at the end of that verse that kings will see someday. Truth will eventually be seen, and the vindication, the great vindication, will come. And the fourth song speaks of this as well and says in Isaiah 52 15, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Oh, and there's even a prefigurement of this prophecy being fulfilled. Because you see the Magi from the east bowing down and worshiping him. Besides, there's going to be a resurrection. There will be the resurrection from the dead. And the fourth song of Isaiah speaks to that resurrection from the dead. And then salvation would start spreading rapidly throughout the world with power from the Holy Spirit, empowering his church to preach in amazing ways. For we read in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, check, done. And in Judea, check, done. And in Samaria, check, done. And to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's the rest of the book. 
And that's where we live today, is taking the gospel to the people who have never, ever heard it. Because God has the elect out there that He's chosen to save, and we're to bring the message. And ultimately, as our passage indicates too, there's going to be a final, a final obeisance of the whole creation to His servant, and He will get all the glory. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow before Him. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we listen to the servant speak in Isaiah 49, it should be really clear who is speaking to you, who is speaking to us. We see here our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant, and through him God will reach to the very ends of the earth to save his people. And so now we listen then to Yahweh's description of our blessing in verses 8 through 13. And to give you the outline here in verses 8 through 9a, the servant's going to have an effective ministry. That's what we read. The servant's going to have a very effective ministry. And then finally in verses 9b to the end, many are going to be gathered and blessed as the people of God. That's the result of this ministry of the servant. And so we read then here at the beginning, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinim. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. So at the very beginning in verses 8 to 9, the servant's going to have a very effective ministry. We read in verse 8, Yahweh continues to speak about bringing the servant's ministry to effective completion. This time of favor, this day of salvation is the period of Jesus' incarnation and his ministry, and even still today. In other words, it's a very large time frame that's being talked about here, a very large one. It would be the time of grace. It would be the time of the cross. And we will be seen for what it is. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law in order that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And you can continue to read in Galatians and see how big that promise gets. In further response to the concern of, four, of verse 4a, you remember how concerned the servant is that he's living a life of despair? And he's promised here that when he needs help, he's going to receive it from him. He will pray. The servants will pray, Jesus will pray, and will be heard, and God will meet all his needs and will keep him every step of the way. Did you know that that's discussed extensively in the book of Hebrews? 
on God's care for His Son in His ministry here in this world. And again, we're told that the servant will be given as a covenant. And we explored this in Song 1 in verse 42.6, a covenant for the people, meaning both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ, noticed is the covenant, not just the mediator of a better one here. Meaning that Jesus is the very representation and the very means to a relationship with God. All blessings are in Jesus directly. The restoration that's spoken about here, it goes way beyond the return from exile. But that's the immediate horizon for the original hearers and the original interpreters. That's exactly what they're thinking. But God intends way more than that to all the gifts of spiritual salvation that ultimately rest upon the Messiah, our eternal inheritance. And this we will see. And Jesus is the one who promised that the meek shall inherit the earth, the whole earth. This physical is often a motif for the spiritual, as prophecy often functions this way. And you'll see it repeatedly in the Bible, all over the place. In fact, we've already seen it. And in Isaiah 42, 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. That's talking about spiritual salvation. And it's how the Apostle Paul even understands the passage right now that we're looking at. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, he understands that this is being fulfilled. Even now. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in Isaiah 49, 8, which we're looking at, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. That's what he's talking about. Behold, now, the apostle says, is the day of salvation. You see, we learn how to understand and to read prophecy from the New Testament. That is how we figure it out. And that's how we understand it. And then we read in verse 9 that continues the thought how this restoration is going to include the servant speaking to prisoners of release. And again, more than just exiles and vision, a greater release again is spoken of because as we look ahead in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, 1, Jesus quotes it in regards to himself. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And Jesus quoted this near the very beginning of his ministry to say that that is exactly what all his preaching is about. The servant will command prisoners of sin to go out from it. He will command them to show themselves by repenting and leaving it. It's referring to Jesus preaching the gospel of repentance and belief in himself. It's like it's often in the New Testament, in in the Gospels, where Jesus will say things like, Come to me. Has that been your experience? You repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know? that that's all that's required? That's amazing because you can't do anything else. There are no good works that you can do that will ever please the Lord in and of yourself. There's no religious rites that you can perform that somehow are going to make you acceptable to God. The only thing is to believe in His servant, who He is, 
what he said and what he came to do and to come out and to repent before him and to put your faith in him and you will be saved. And the blessings then for you, they're all recounted in the rest of this passage for you. Many here are going to be gathered and blessed as the people of God. We read in verses 9b through 12. Here's an extended description of our life of those who respond to the gospel in Jesus Christ. We are a flock who will feed right there on barren places. Did you see the irony there? How do you feed in a barren place? Barren means nothing's growing. But somehow you have something to eat. That's a very interesting image. I mean, how can you be satisfied in a barren place? Have you ever wondered that? You've probably experienced it, haven't you? That God provides for you in those times. The point is, is that we're going to find spiritual sustenance very easily and very readily, even in the most difficult times of life. That's so true, isn't it? This life with God and blessing in Christ by the Holy Spirit, this is our life. It's feeding in barren places. It's being blessed in the midst of a world full of sin and all of its awful effects in our lives. He says, he goes on, we're never going to be hungry or thirsty. Never going to hunger or thirst or be beaten down by the scorching sun. All this language should remind you of the Exodus story back at the beginning of the Bible. Because in that Exodus journey, and if you read the whole journey, you realize this is an amazing journey. Because every single step of the way, every single need for food, for water, for what shade, for whatever they need, God provided it all the time. All the time, he provided it. That's the image for us. And it's an image that's not just in the Exodus. The prophets use this image all over the place. Jesus used the image, and it even speaks to our final hope. I mean, Jesus is the one in John chapter 7 who says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So let us drink from him. In Revelation chapter 7, it says, For this reason... They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And speaking of our ultimate destiny, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. All that we need physically and spiritually will be supplied by our Lord God. And toward his people, he shows compassion and he gives guidance and he leads us to springs of water when it seems so dry. Verse 11 then continues describing us as a people with a destiny. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be lifted up. It continues to describe our destiny as the people of God, destiny we all have and have always had, and it perfectly describes how easy it's going to be to fulfill God's calling that he has on our life. Did you notice whose mountains they are in there? You see the little his in there? They're his mountains. So he can do what he wants with his mountains. And he can make them go down. And they're his highways. And he can make them rise up. They're his. 
And so he can remove them as if they're nothing, and the path itself will be raised for us, even supplanting the mountains themselves and all those obstacles in life, even though life can be difficult so, time, so difficult at times, but with the Lord and for the Lord, it can be glorious nonetheless. And we really stand out then as Christians, don't we? If our life is terrible, difficult, whether it's a physical ailment or family difficulties or awful things that happen to us in our jobs or in our life or whatever it is, and we praise the Lord still? I mean, what a weird person you are, right? But that's who we are, and that's who God has made us to be. God meets all of our needs in Christ, and He leads us towards this destiny. Our life really, you see, is because so many people in this world think their life is about themselves. How wrong they are. And even we can get trapped into that because those people are all around us and we can start thinking like of them and we can start thinking that our life is about ourselves. But our life is not about ourselves. Our life is about God and His purposes for our lives and we want to serve Him with whatever He gives us and whatever He puts in front of us. And then verse 12 reveals to us the identity of these blessed people. I mean, what a blessing. Don't you want to belong to that group? I mean, that's an amazing group of people. So who are these people? In verse 12, we find out. These are people who come from afar, the east. And behold, some of these from the north and from the west, and those from the land of Cyrene or Sinim or the south. These are the blessed people. You see, they're not just the Israelites coming back from their exile. It's all the peoples of the Gentiles around the world. They're people that come from way far in the east, as far east as you can go. These are people that come from the north, as far north as you can travel. These are people that come from the west, even across the great sea. These are people who come from, the Hebrew actually literally says, Sinim. It's probably translated as Cyrene in yours. It means the south, perhaps. The even as far south as you could go to Egypt. It's an obscure term, and actually very interesting, is that an ancient interpretation is that that's speaking of China. Now, since the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we don't think that's the best choice anymore. But you see the directions, right? It's east, north, south, west. That's the whole idea. It's the whole globe. That's the prophecy. The point is, is that the return from Babylon, as great as that was, was not really that great. Because it would be greater yet when Jesus came and when he would save people from all the peoples all around the world. That's great. That's glory. The servant you see in our text, he's somewhere he disappeared. And we didn't even notice it, but he's not in the forefront of our text anymore. He, but he's busy. He's gathering the people of God from all over the world. In Matthew 8, 11, Jesus said, I say to you that many, speaking of the Gentiles, many shall come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So as we listen to Yahweh's description of our blessing, we realize that today, our time, is the day of salvation. It's still the day of salvation for the whole world. And then we have to shout for joy. Notice how it ends in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens. And exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Isaiah bursts out into the song, just like he did, you remember, at the end of, verse, the end of song 42, and we sort of read ahead a little bit in verse 10, and all of a sudden he starts singing for joy again. Yeah? 
So, and he exhorts us to join with him. And notice he wants all of heaven to sing. He wants all of earth to sing. He even wants creation to sing. I've never heard a mountain sing, but apparently they can. Because God created them. That's a lot of singing going on. The magnitude of salvation is so big that we are to sing of it. And it's a call to all the earth, to all the heavens, to all of creation to rejoice. Because you see, that's what the songs of Isaiah, the servant songs, that's what they're all about. Ha, we thought they were about the servant singing. No, they're about us singing. About us singing of the greatness and the glory of our Messiah. And finally, in verse 13, so what's the great comfort? The great comfort for us is from Christ Jesus, the servant. For us, what's the great compassion? The great compassion for us is from Christ Jesus, the servant. And we still anticipate more at his return. For we still remain, do you notice how we're described at the end? His afflicted ones. Maybe you don't feel it today. Maybe you felt it yesterday. Maybe you'll feel it in the future. But you'll at one time feel it as God's people. You'll feel afflicted. We are His afflicted. And that's the best kind of afflicted. Because he is on our side, and he brings comfort and compassion. And by his servant, God's going to reach to the very ends of the earth, and he's going to save all his people. He's going to save them. This second servant song began with the words from the holy servant Jesus himself, 49 verse 1. What's the first word? Listen. Listen to me, he says. So we've listened to the servant, we've listened to Yahweh speak about his servant, he's spoken to us, we've listened to them talking to each other, the Father and the Son. Their magnificent, far-reaching work in the world that would take place at just the right time. You know, there should be plenty in this second servant song of Isaiah to take home and meditate on. Because, you know, that's how you listen your listening's not done this morning. We're to look at Isaiah 49, to take it home, and to listen to it, to read it to yourself, to rethink through things you've heard and re-preach it to yourself. That's how you listen to it. Jesus wants you to listen to him. And God, as we learned this morning, is going to reach to the very ends of the earth, and he's going to save his people. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday. Today is the first Sunday of the month. It's a special celebration that we have, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we do that because we glory in what Jesus accomplished. That everything this psalm, or this Isaiah, song in Isaiah is predicting, Jesus fulfilled. And it wasn't for naught. He really died for our sins. He really took them away. They're really gone. And that's what we celebrate this morning. So if those who are going to help me serve this morning, if you'd please come forward at this time. Thank you, man. 
So we're celebrating the, uh, the Lord's Supper again, just to remind you of what it is we're celebrating. It's a sacrament that our Lord Jesus himself instituted, if you remember. It's to remember his cross, that he wants his church to remember it's his cross and the glory of it the whole time. It's also a reminder to us that we're united to 